Turn to Ezra chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, and we will uh, just be reading a, a few verses here. You see that uh, we're doing chapters 9 and 10, and as I entered into a study, I, I, I thought that maybe we could get all the way through chapters 9 and 10 in one sermon. Uh, but as I studied and I said this earlier, drilled down uh, deeper, I, I knew that that was going to be next to impossible. So for the next couple of weeks, uh, we will be rounding out the book of Ezra. This is about sermon number 11, I think. We did a, a brief break, a pause between chapters 6 and 7. And we considered the, uh, the book of Esther, how it fits in with the uh, study of Ezra. But uh, I, I want to begin with this, because there may be some of you who are relatively new. We talked about this in the introduction to the book of Ezra, um, and just some, some conversations this last week uh, made me feel that it's necessary to go back and remind ourselves why we are studying through an Old Testament historical book like the book of Ezra. Someone said to me, and I get it, they said, you know, uh, as we listen to your sermons, as we hear what you're preaching, uh, I, I think that we can relate more to a biographical study like Esther. It's just very applicable and we, we get into the heart of that person, and, and then they were trying to be kind and said, we, we, we like the historical study, we just like the other better. It seems to be more interesting and more engaging. And again, I get it. But along the way, I, I'm going to appeal to your parents now to help me out with this, if your child says to you, I just want candy for dinner. Granted, that's more interesting, tasty, engaging. But probably what you're going to do is to say, let's hold off on the candy. Let's make sure you get your broccoli. Right? I hope that our theology and philosophy of why we do this is clear. One of the things that binds us together is the belief in sola scriptura, that it is the scripture alone that is inspired, complete, sufficient, all of it. The Old Testament is not just a collection of boring history and lofty poetry and moral sagas to imitate. I, th I think of the words of Jesus when he was encountering religious people, and they were trying to get a feel for, wh where do I get eternal life? And he said, look, you guys go to the Scriptures. And by that, he meant the Old Testament Scriptures, which were complete as we have them today. They were complete. And he reminded them, you search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But remember, these Scriptures speak of me. They bear witness about me. The apostles picked up on that theme too. And here in the book of Luke, writing 
that goes back to the story of Jesus and his encounter with the two disciples on the, the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. This is Jesus again. He interpreted them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road as he opened the scriptures to us. And so every time I do a study like this, I'm looking for how this scripture points us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope you are too. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at that. I'll give you a hint. Next week, hopefully in the third point, we're going to see how, and I'd never seen this before, how Ezra is such an incredible picture of the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But first, let's read. We're going to go through the first two points that I have here on the outline. We'll read Ezra 9, verses 1 and 2, drop down to verse 7, make some applications, and then we'll go on to the next passage of Scripture. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra speaking, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. You need to get a look at that. They have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And he just lists some. This is not an exclusive list. A representative list, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And here is the specific way that they are saying we have been faithless. They have taken some of their, their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race or the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Their leaders were involved in this. Now drop down to verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. One of the first things that I see in this, it's an incredibly important point, is that Ezra, now get this, Ezra, their leader, didn't point out the problem. We're going to have to go back to see particularly for some of you who haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, Ezra didn't point out the problem. He was just faithful to preach the word, and people got it. Ezra 7.10, that's been our memory verse this last month. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And he did that. He was faithful to do that. That's huge. 
And the people responded to the preaching of the word. Now, it doesn't exactly say it right here, but we know the hand of the Lord was on them. The Spirit of God took the word of God and brought conviction. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel said, For we have forsaken your commandments. Why is that important to me and why is that important to you? tell you why. For me, there are times when I really do feel I wonder what impact my preaching is having. I think every preacher asks that question. But let me filter it down to you. You may be asking as a father or as a mother or as a grandparent or as a sibling and you've been trying to work with, mentor, disciple someone in your family or someone that you're working with and sometimes that niggling thought goes through your mind is what I am doing in trying to put the Word of God into this person's life. Is it making any difference at all. And I want to encourage you today, listen, the Word works. Now, it may not bring about the exact result that you expect or even that you want, but you can be sure that the Word works. In this case, Ezra was not doing anything that we can see beyond being faithful to teach the Word. And as the Word was being proclaimed, it was being taught, they watched him live it out, then conviction was brought on these people. You know the New Testament verse that gives us an indication of this. All Scripture, what does that mean? All of it, Old Testament, New Testament, from Genesis 1 to the maps. All of it is inspired by God and is profitable, whether you see the results initially or not. It's profitable for teaching, which was what Ezra was doing, and then came as a result of the faithful teaching, the reproving. These people felt reproved, convicted in their hearts that they were not living according, look, to the commandments in the other verse that Ezra was teaching. So we know that that happens, reproof for training, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I've told you my, my story from time to time, uh, the reality that I grew up in a church, I listened to faithful preaching. It wasn't a big church. In the whole scheme of things, it was a no-name pastor, but he faithfully taught the Word. I look back and see that now. I didn't get that as a kid. I just got that he preached and he yelled a lot. I raised my voice, but I grew up in a church where the preacher yelled. And, uh, and I rebelled as a teenager. And it, it's, really, it's really interesting. You look back on those things and you don't realize it, but all along that time when I was in rebellion, 
a verse kept coming into my mind. And it bothered me. And it should have. And I know that the teacher, I know that the preacher taught it. I know that he preached it over and over again. It was Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, which says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But the first part didn't bother me. It was the but and what came after. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I, I, I'm not telling you that my theology as a teenager was, was just exactly right on target, but that bothered me because I knew by my lifestyle and my words that I was denying the Savior that I had said formerly had paid for my sins. And there was a time when God used the Word. That, that was the only verse that kept coming to my mind. And it didn't, didn't give me much relief until I went back to church and I began to see that the relief came in hearing the gospel. So that's what's going on here in the book of Esther. You read, didn't, didn't you, just a few minutes ago, the people of God had strayed from, had defected from the path of righteousness. It says his statutes, his rules, they had become unfaithful. And faithfulness means turning from or repenting of sin and, as, as the word here says it, the abominations of the world around you. Now, Benjamin Keach, fascinating story. You, you need to look up and read his story. A faithful pastor in England in the 1600s. He wrote a little thing that's attached a lot of times to the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, called Keech's Catechism. It helps to, to teach kids, teach adults, the reality of Scripture. And by the way, just parenthetically, Benjamin Keach also wrote a primer, an instruction book for children. We don't have any copies of it because he was arrested He wasn't a part of the, the, the Church of England. He was a dissenter. He was a Baptist. He taught baptism by water, by immersion. Many think he was arrested simply because of the children's book that taught children how to live. It mentioned baptism. And he was arrested. He was pilloried. You know what that is? Put in the stocks. And he was imprisoned and made to pay a 20-pound Fine, that was a lot of money back then for writing a book to instruct children in the ways of God. So anyway, just a little aside, I, I was looking at that. Question 18 in Keech's Catechism, what is sin? Sin is want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And I put in 1 John 2, 3 and 3, 4 by this we know that we have come to know him. What was Ezra doing? Teaching the commandments of God. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And sin is transgression of the law. You remember in our study of Thessalonians, I hope, this is exactly what happens at conversion. 
They report how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. The convicting power of God's word revealed to them. Now get this, get this. Because if it doesn't translate to you, then you're missing it. The word of God revealed to them that they could not mingle sin and faithfulness to God. And it starts in your own life. Let me just make that personal. You cannot mingle sin with faithfulness to God. It doesn't work. And what God is after is faithfulness. Folks, as we've said over and over and over again, faithfulness to God is not a mechanical thing. It's not, oh, you get a a, a thing that you read the Bible every day and you check that off. And then you come to church and you check that off. And you do certain things. You give your money. All the rest, that flows out of a relationship with the living God. That's what he's after is faithfulness, the relationship. And it didn't happen overnight. Do you realize that at this point, chapter 9, about 80 years had passed since the first group of, of, of returning exiles had come back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel? And little by little, step by step, they slowly but surely defected from their faithfulness to Yahweh's commands. And lo and behold, this is, this is so interesting. They had warning after warning. They began to fall into, get this, the same sins that got them into bondage and exile in the first place. Wouldn't you think they would have learned a lesson? Wouldn't you think that we would learn a lesson? I saw this little quote. I thought it was quite interesting, like children, and I thought Adam and Eve too, to some people a warning, I think of little children, a warning is the same as an invitation. Make sure it's not that way with you. Here's how it showed itself. Did you see it in verse 1? Look, we're going to walk through some things. Their failure And you need to personalize this, please. My failure, your failure, to be faithful to God demonstrated itself in their failure to separate from the people of the land and their abominations to the extent that they actually were intermarrying. This is important with idolaters. Separation is a constant theme throughout Scripture. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. We, we read it a few minutes ago in chapter 9, verse 1, but, but look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Then we jump to Peter's preaching and 
the book of Acts, the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and what did he say to those who had repented? He said, with many other words, he, that's a typical preacher, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked or perverse generation. Again, it's not mechanical. It is relational. Following Christ means leaving sin. The prodigal son, what did he have to do to come home to the father? He had to leave the pig pen mentally, emotionally, physically. He had to leave the pig pen. He couldn't stay in the pig pen and go home to dad. If you've got a good marriage, saying yes to your spouse means saying no to every other lover. All of the old boyfriends and girlfriends that perhaps you had at one time. That's the principle of separation. And it's so vitally important. Now, I said a minute ago, and part of the, the title, at least at this point, it leads to serious, serious consequences. Look again at verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. The iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. Do you think that that was just for them? At this slice of time in history, or is that also true of people today? God does not wink at your sin. God does not wink at your sin. I, I think, you, you know, we... Uh, there are studies out that talk about the names, the Old Testament covenant names of God. We know all those, some of those names, Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider. We like that. All the rest of the list. But how many of you know that there is also a name of God? He's a jealous God. Jehovah Kana. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, these, the, the abominations, and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now, an important caveat, that's why I've said we may have to come back and look at how, how do we apply this full on. Does this mean that you're supposed to just... Go out of the world, join a, a, a monastery, quit your job, you just go try to be around people that are totally holy. There, there is a caveat that Paul talks about, and he's talking about the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And by the way, the, the, the theme of sexual immorality is is, is here in this passage of Scripture. It's not all as we apply it, but that's here. 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers, see, it's other stuff, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And there is that delicate but firm balance that we need to separate from the world while remaining in the world as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, we're, we're going to come back and look at some of those things in the future. I just want to give that to you to think about today. Let's go on to point number two, verses 10 and 11 and then 14. Here's, here's how, these are long titles, I know. Being unequally yoked with unbelievers is a grave sin for believers. It is a violation of God, God's plan for our identity and the sanctity of the marriage covenant. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Drop down to verse 14. It says 14a. I'm going to read the whole verse. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor anyone to escape? As I began this study in the book of Ezra, I read through the whole book. I got to chapter 9 and chapter 10, and I thought, wow. A cursory reading of those chapters is incredibly troubling. Let me just give you some words about that and about what he's not saying and what I believe that he is saying in here. First of all, don't apply, this is all literal, right? But don't apply as case law what they are told to do. Don't apply that to your bad marriage. And I've seen people, I'll, I'll share just in a minute about one. People will do all kinds of, quote, biblical and spiritual gymnastics to get out of a marriage they don't want to be in. And they'll go to someplace like this, well, she's a foreign wife, so I need to put her away. First of all, this is messianic. You've got to see it in the very first verse about, about the, the, the second verse, excuse me, the holy race, the holy seed. You see, if they intermarried and they continued without any limitation, the Jewish race, which is so fascinating, all through history, the Jewish race has been probably the only race to maintain any kind of integrity of their bloodline. It's amazing. Somebody described it like a river running through an ocean. And if that, listen, if that had been allowed to happen, you can see how 
that the Messiah who was to come from the Jews, that would be obliterated. So that's the first reason why faithfulness to God was so vitally important. Second thing that I will say, this passage should not be used as a proof text against interracial marriage. I'll put quotes around that interracial marriage. People in the past who have used this as a proof text that different ethnic groups should not intermarry are either terribly uninformed or they are racist. How do I know that this is not a racist thing? It's not about race. It's about faith. It's about sharing the same faith path. which Ezra wanted them to do, which God wanted them to do. You know how I know that it's not just about marrying between people of different skin colors or ethnic backgrounds? I know that because Moses married, get this, and one of the races not mentioned but surely alluded to here, he married a Midianite woman. Boaz married, and this group is mentioned, a Moabitess. But in both of those cases, Moses and Boaz remained faithful to Yahweh, and Zephorah and Ruth became followers of Yahweh. That is not the case here. So let me say it like this. This is not a racial thing, and I put quotes around that. An ethnic thing, a color thing. This is an unequally yoked thing. It's, it's obvious to see. These foreign women, the, the wives, were not God worshipers, nor were they neutral. They're described as practicing impurity, uncleanness, and abominations, that is, detestable things. And the question is for Ezra, how in the world could the covenant people of God join with idolaters? And the answer is, like we said a few moments ago, they couldn't. You can't mingle faithfulness and sin. And when you try to do that, Maybe God would give grace when you try to mingle faith with sin. Who usually wins? Yeah. Illustration. When I was in college, that's when I had a real turnaround experience with the Lord and began to, began to change the way I lived. That's the way it should be. Things that came out of my mouth, things that filled my head, all the rest of that began to change as the Word began to work its way into my heart. One thing that began to change was my dating life. Because before then, my criteria for dating were very small. She had to be really cute. 
uh, other things, you know, that good personality, all the rest of that. But now I'm a Christian. It, and I don't know that I would say it was intuitive. I don't know that the preacher ever preached. I, I, I never heard a sermon out of Ezra 9 and 10 before, but I knew I knew that dating non-Christians, as a Christian, dating a non-Christian was not right. So guess how I at least did that for a while? I called it evangelistic dating. <laughs> hey, go out. There's no commitment. Speaking to the unmarried here, and we've got a whole group of unmarried right over here. Evangelistic dating, did it work? Nah. I really did try to share the God. Here, here's an illustration. I, told, I warned Jan beforehand that we were going to do that. So come up here, honey. Okay, stand there. I want to give you an illustration of why this won't work. Let's say that I'm a believer and Jan is a, uh, a non-believer. Obviously, she fits the criteria of being cute. So, here's the thought. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm strong enough as a believer. I can pull her up to my level, right? Evangelistic dating. Which is more likely to happen? For me to be strong enough or, or whoa, whoa, that, that, that's good. I told her not to pull too hard. I might not make it down. Does this really apply to dating? You marry who you date unless you grow up in a culture that it's arranged. That may not be such a bad idea. But since you marry who you date, why in the world? Students, you can't mingle faithfulness with sin. And, and, and a lot of the Bible is just structured with this kind of thing. Deuteronomy 7 says something very, very important. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, is this not a picture of salvation? Here's what you're to do and not do. You shall not intermarry with them. See, they knew the commands. Giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn, watch this, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Solomon had a problem with this. Now he, he really messed up. It wasn't just one unsaved wife, it was 700. Do you think he stood a chance? Look at this. When Solomon was old, his wives did exactly what, and it may not happen overnight. He or she may go to church with you, but, but don't 
break the commands of God. Wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, let me say this, and, and we'll get more into this, I think, next week. This is not just outward action. This has to do with your mind and what goes on with your mind. It means you must separate yourself from every evil thought. And here's the principle. Don't ever, 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 ever be unequally yoked. And when you see that in your family or someplace else, how should you feel? We're going to get more into it, but you can look down and see what Ezra did. I, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. He, he went ballistic. Was he overreacting? No, because he knew the penalty of disobeying the laws of God. Again, this is not an Old Testament thing. This is very New Testament. Don't un, be unequally yoked with unbelievers, the apostle says. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? You can't mingle sin with faithfulness. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? I started to put Satan in there, but Belial is a really, that's a, I, Paul knew what he was doing. It, it was the name of a demon, but it was really the, the outworking of worthlessness. You don't join the two. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols. Now, what in the world does it mean to be unequally yoked? When I say that, what picture is in your mind? Are you thinking of eggs in a, in a frying pan, yoked? Now, here's the picture that you should be thinking of. This is unequally yoked. Two oxen, one that's ready to go, ready to go on the faith path, plowing, that's the job. And the other one is just not. They're having nothing to do with it. That's unequally yoked. That's a picture of what we are not to do. Now, here's the question as we come down to, to apply this to the end. Why so important? What's the big deal? I want to read to you from uh, a, a little thing. It's a paragraph that is in our bylaws. We have adopted this. It's interesting. We did this several years ago. It's on marriage, family, and sexuality. You, you, can, you can go on site, uh, on site to the website, uh, online to the website, and you can look it up. Here is what it says that we believe. We believe that God created mankind in His image as male or female. That God ordained marriage as a covenant commitment between one man and one woman, and that a union, that, that union, a, a covenant with God for their joint lifetime, and this union is the foundation of the family and the essential structure for society, that the husband is commanded to, we're talking about a Christian marriage here, that the husband is commanded to love his wife as Christ loved the church, the wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ, that God hates the dissolution of marriage, divorce, 
that sexuality is designed by God to be expressed exclusively between one man and one woman within the context of marriage and that all other expressions of sexuality, including but not limited to, we put the limited to in there because even since then there have been new categories, including but not limited to fornication, relations before marriage, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, incest, bisexuality. That all of these and anything else that does not conform to the law of God are sinful and offensive to God. We used a lot of different scriptures to support that, but one of those was from Genesis chapter 1 and Mark chapter 10. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man not just a man, but man put asunder or separate. And folks, those words, let not man put asunder or separate, are a picture of what happened then and a picture of what is happening today. And that unfortunately is accelerating. You know, I, I really, I don't know of any churches, maybe there were some, when I was growing up that had to have a statement like this in their bylaws. But we do to help our people define the biblical realities of what God expects. Let me give you just one last illustration of how powerful the realization of this really is. When I do premarital counseling, it usually takes four to five sessions, and right away in the first session as we begin to talk about the husband-wife relationship, I want, I, I want to talk about the one flesh principle. And so I ask the question, I always ask it of the guy. Same could, same could be for the girl. But I ask the, the young man, and I say, ask him the question first, if your fiancé, your wife-to-be, lied to you, would it bother you? Let me ask you men that. If your wife lied to you, would it bother you? It should. She's violating a commandment rupturing the relationship. Then I always follow up with this question. If your wife was unfaithful to you, would it bother you more? I'll ask you men that. You can guess what the men say. They always do. Well, yeah. And then I, you know, I'm trying to drive home a point with them and with you. Why? 
what's, what's the big deal anyway? Doesn't our culture say, you know, all these different kinds of things? And, oh, by the way, aren't all sins the same? That's a common thing that I hear today. I say the reason that it hurts more deeply than any other sin is because from the beginning of the Bible, the Bible begins with a marriage. And the Bible ends with a wedding. And all the way along, the marriage is to be a picture of the reality of the relationship that exists between Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Let me ask you just a couple of questions and make a couple of statements. Are you in any way, I'm not talking about just with actions, that's what the Pharisees always said, well, we don't do this. Jesus said, well, what's in your mind? Are you in any way trying to mingle sin, hanging on to an old lifestyle, mentally, emotionally, physically? Are you trying to mingle sin with your faithfulness to God? Ask the Lord to show you any way in which that is true. Ask the Lord to show you, to reveal to you how in any way you are unequally yoked. And I'm not talking about just marriage here. Could be dating, could be a business relationship, many, many different ways. Remember this. Every action begins with a thought. Usually it's something that you love, and even if you say it's not as much as you love the Lord, it's amazing how if you don't separate from it, get rid of it, it begins to get equal to the Lord and then take over completely. You can't do that. They couldn't do it then. You can't do it now. So which will it be? Your sin? Or the Lord. Father, I pray that um, this passage of Scripture would have spoken to us from antiquity, some 2,500 years ago when all of this went down. And uh, the officials came to Ezra as a result of the teaching of the Word. The upshot we'll see in the weeks ahead was that they repented and they put away their sin. They wanted to be faithful to and follow the Lord. And I pray that the people here today, starting with me, would be more than eager to do the same. So, Father, help us to do that. Those of us who know you, if there is anyone here today who does not know you. Through a saving relationship with Christ, I pray that you would show that person, young or old, male or female, the reality of their sin against you, a holy God. And the fact that you gave your son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners like us. 
And Father, they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And if they can't quite get there, Lord, oh, I cry out to you to, to help them to ask you for that repentance and faith so they may be saved and begin that walk with you into eternity. So we thank you and we praise you for what you are doing in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.